So um, here's the title of the paper, but on reflection, I thought that might be a little enigmatic. So here's what it's really about. Why you should keep a firm grip on your kidneys in your eyes and the company of certain people. Um, this paper, actually, uh, if I was to leave out all the filling, would take about two minutes. But I figured, hey, you've got to get value for money. So there's 18 minutes of nonsense stuck in between. Right? Um, there's no view so absurd that some philosopher hasn't held it. Cicero. And uh, I hope your judgment this morning will be that I'm not one of those, right? But, but I'm going to be talking about somebody, I think, who is one of those. Uh, under discussion in a seminar uh, was Jonathan Swift's a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people in Ireland from being a burden to their parents or country and from making them beneficial to the public. There we are. There's Swift's modest proposal in action. This is actually a statue in Bern. I can't imagine what they were thinking of. One of the students asked to comment on Swift's suggestion that eating babies might simultaneously solve the overpopulation problem while providing a nutritious source of food to those left alive. Uh, He said, well, that might have been all right in Mr. Swift's day, but I don't think we could do that now. Talking with an acquaintance about some of the funniest opening lines in literature, I instanced the first sentence in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Right. Well, it's a truth universally acknowledged. Um, I was only I, I met with a sort of funny stare, with a blank stare. What's funny about that, my acquaintance asked, or puzzled? Well, nothing, of course, except that it isn't the truth, <laughs> even if it were. It isn't universally acknowledged, unless the universe shrinks to contain only mothers of marriageable females in early 19th century England. Okay. The moral of these stories is, but you were wondering why you were getting all of this, right? The moral of these stories is to be careful in your use of irony. Um, some idiot with a defective irony gland is bound to take you literally. Uh, and what can seem the height of absurdity to you can present itself as a reasonable option to some others. So here's a quick view of my, overview of my presentation then. Um, a perennial topic in political philosophy is the nature, extent, and limits of property. An aspect of this of particular interest to libertarians is the relationship between self-ownership and the ownership of external resources. Libertarians tend to take the position that self-ownership is relatively unproblematic. Ah, yes. And that what needs to be explained, uh, I mean, there's no substance in this talk. It's all just slides, okay? The slides. Okay. Um, and what needs to be explained is how self-ownership is, as it were, to be projected into the world to permit the private ownership of external resources. Left libertarians, and now I mean, there's different uses of the term left libertarians. By left libertarians in the context of this paper, I mean people like Michael Lotsuka, Peter Valentine, Hillel Steiner, and so on, and not, there's another branch, if you like, of left libertarians, which I'm not talking about. Anyway, these left libertarians defend self-ownership while at the same time being prepared to countenance significant restriction on the ownership of external resources. Oops, sorry about that. So there we are. Michael Atsuka, Peter Valentine, Hillel Steiner. So there we are. There's the left libertarian position. Okay. All shall have prizes, all shall have property. <laughs> The analytical Marxist, G.A. Cohen, who is, uh, according to David Gordon himself, his favorite Marxist, um, affirms the antecedent plausibility of self-ownership, noting that leftists who disparage 
um, who disparaged Nuzik's essentially unargued affirmation of each person's rights over himself, lose confidence in their unqualified denial of the thesis of self-ownership when they are asked to consider who has the right to decide what should happen, for example, to their own eyes. So, to whom do your eyes belong? Well, I suspect. How many people think they belong to you? Let's have hands up on this one. I don't see your hand up, sir. Don't you think you own your eyes? Okay. You, without doubt, you say. Well, perhaps. So we come to <laughs> the thesis of body exceptionalism. So much for the overview. Let's take things just a wee bit more slowly. The claim that if I own anything at all, I own myself, is one of those that divides people. To some it seems nonsensical, to others more or less self-evident. As already mentioned, G.A. Cohen um, is one of those who takes the notion of self-ownership seriously, finding it intuitively plausible. In his influential book, Self-Ownership, Freedom and Equality, he writes, The thesis of self-ownership has plenty of appeal. <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't meant to be funny, actually. But, uh, its antecedent, that is, pre-philosophical appeal, uh, rivals that of whatever principles of equality it is thought to contradict. Responding to his own musings, uh, read the shakiness of the opposition to self-ownership when those who oppose it are confronted with the possibility of having their eyes reallocated. Uh, he continues, They do not immediately agree that, were eye transplants easy to achieve, it would then be acceptable for the state to... Cons to uh, Oh, I've conscribed down here. I don't know what that means. I obviously miswrote that. Anyway, some verb meaning potential eye donors uh, into a lottery, uh, conscript, potential eye donors into a lottery whose losers must yield an eye to beneficiaries who would otherwise be not one-eyed but blind. The fact that the the fact that they do not deserve their good eyes, that they do not need two good eyes more than blind people, um, and so forth. The fact, in a word, that they are merely lucky to have two good eyes, does not convince them that their claim on their own eyes is not stronger than that of some unlucky blind person. But, he says, and I emphasize this, if the standard leftist objection to inequality of resources, private property, and ultimate condition are taken quite literally, then the fact that it is sheer luck that these relatively good eyes are mine should deprive me of special privilege in them. This is Cohen. So there it is. Cohen, it would seem then, intends this last remark as an ironic warning against taking what he calls standard leftist objections literally. And now entered the villain of the piece, Cécile Fabre, who at the time was, was teaching at, at Edinburgh. Now she's at one of the Oxford colleges. There she is, picture so you can recognize her and avoid her when you see her. Okay. <laughs> the contemporary political philosopher Cécile Fabre denies that the claim of self-ownership is unproblematic. She argues that if one thinks that the needy have a right to the material resources they need in order to lead decent lives, one must be committed to conferring on the sick a right that the healthy give them some of the body parts they need to lead such a life. She is the author of a paper ominously entitled Justice and the Compulsory Taking of live body parts. Thank you, sir. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought that might interest you. Uh, yes, yeah. 
I believe that Fabre is correct in thinking that the principles that allow for the restriction of our interference with the ownership of external resources must, if one be consistent, be extendable to self-ownership. However, I believe that what our argument really shows is the incoherence of any form of left libertarianism, a la Asuka, Valentine, Steiner, uh, leaving the choice between her moral cannibalism and those who defend robust versions of both self-ownership and the ownership of external resources. Fabre believes that, so there's some more of her stuff. Right? So say this is not just a once-off. This is not just an aberration. She's been doing this stuff since 2002. Okay. So um, she believes that most contemporary theories of justice uh, hold that those who are badly off have a right to some of the resources of the well-off in order to live a decent life. Uh, let, let's just pause here for a moment. Uh, even if it were true that most contemporary theories of justice held this, and just how many theories of justice are there, why should this be of any significance? Uh, it is also held, she believes, that people should have a considerable degree of self-ownership or autonomy. She uses the two terms interchangeably. Fabre sees the right to a decent life and the right to autonomy as being in competition, and the problem of political philosophy being how to reconcile them. So there we are. So she starts from two ordered principles of substantive justice, which embody these competing rights. According to Faber, we have a principle of sufficiency, which is that people have a right to the resources they need in order to lead a decent life. And secondly, a principle of autonomy, which is that once the principle of sufficiency is satisfied for everyone, then everyone should be permitted to follow their ideas of the good and enjoy the fruits of their labor. Now, now note that these principles are ordered. Uh, the principle of sufficiency must be satisfied before the principle of autonomy. Very few libertarians would be willing even to start down this path, okay? So we could, we could probably stop the conversation right there. But anyway, um, once again, we might pause for some reflection. All sorts of questions might be asked about the principle of sufficiency. Where does it come from? What is its justification? Is it meant to be self-evident? As right is used in this principle, is it a claim right? If so, against whom is the claim to be made? Me? You, the state, if the state, why the state? What if there is no state, as it actually has been the case for most of human existence? And so on. Lots of questions. Now, Farber argues that everyone has an interest in living a decent life. Oops, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So these are the questions. Um, <clears throat> she argues that everyone has an interest in living a decent life, and in order to do so, must have access to an adequate amount of resources, food, clothing, shelter, health, care, as well as being minimally autonomous. And she notes that the provision of sufficiency for some may require the curtailment of autonomy for others, but she believes once everyone has a sufficiency, then everyone should be allowed to maximize his autonomy as a matter of right. Once again, time for reflection. How is this supposed to work? How does one determine what is or what is not a level of decency? Who makes decisions? Whom does it range over? The notion of basic decency is so vague as to make it practically impossible to allow for any autonomy at all. There are some questions. What is the effect of these principles, then, uh, of justice on property rights? Well, she claims that neither collective ownership nor unrestricted private ownership can satisfy... Uh, these principles. Collective ownership violates the principle of autonomy, while unrestricted private ownership violates the principle of sufficiency. She is going to argue for a combination of both kinds of ownership or rights as a way of satisfying her principles. Now, under her proposal, 
principle of sufficiency, all would get equal shares in natural resources. In the event that Peter Pan has insufficient resources, he has a right against Captain Hook that Hook cultivate his share in certain ways or allow Peter to do so. Quote, the sufficiency principle requires that neither of us singly um, has the rights to decide by whom, whether, and how the world would be used and to enjoy the whole of the income derived from it. We both have these rights only if our life is not decent under the status quo and if the other's life is better than ours, or more than decent, or already decent, and who would not get less than decent after the decisions are made. Again, shades of the sort of standard left libertarian line here. Let's imagine a situation in which some people need housing and others have more than one property. In such circumstances, if, for example, taxation wouldn't do the job, quote, justice requires that those houses be requisitioned. In the film Shenandoah, a boy asks his father what requisition means, and he gets the following answer. (laughs) I love this film. Requisition, it's a fancy word for stealing. Okay. On the face of it, then, um, on the face of it, then, it looks as if the composite set of private and collective rights might impinge negatively on autonomy. But individuals can use the world as they wish, provided they do so in a way that the luckless are provided for, and any way they they choose after that. Suppose somebody were to object that requiring the lucky to work for the unlucky is an infringement of their autonomy. Quote, if the lucky have to work uh, more, let let alone all of their time for the unlucky, my Dworkinian opponent, I don't know why she picks on Dworkin, my Dworkinian opponent would argue they cannot implement those identity-conferring choices of theirs which do not revolve around work, and they do not therefore have a decent life. This, one would think, is a pretty potent objection, but it doesn't bother uh, Barbara. With a straight face, uh, she denies that being forced to do work you don't want to do is not a form of slavery, provided your life is still decent. One might wonder whether or not this isn't the contradiction in terms. But anyway, she finally admits that even in such a case, her composite theory of property rights does in fact infringe on the autonomy of the lucky, but not, she says, <laughs> to an unacceptable degree. Hmm. I wonder if everybody would agree with her, at which point a libertarian might rudely respond, says who? Right? The criticism that it does... Uh, have force only if one focuses on the situation of the lucky and overlooks the fact that if they don't work for the unlucky, the latter are not autonomous either, since they lack the material resources necessary for them to enjoy the opportunities society offers them. Such focus unacceptably fails to live up to what motivates justice in the first instance. Clearly, the lucky will suffer a loss of autonomy, but this is an unavoidable condition of securing minimum autonomy for all. So, that's all right then. Okay, we're all happy with that. You You couldn't make this stuff up. Um, we, you might even begin to think here we have a conflation of autonomy and sufficiency in a way which you know pulls the rug out completely from her enterprise. But anyway, let's move on. Um, once again, oops, getting ahead of myself here. Uh, once again, she mentions the to her acceptability of taxation and its onerousness in a bid to make her proposal seem less appealing. She says, "I quote: Conceptions of ownership, which." Um, Disallow restricting the lucky's control rights over the world, but allow that they should be taxed can also be very detrimental to the autonomy of the lucky if they're designed in such a way as to secure justice. Well, nobody here is going to give her an argument on that one. Um, But for justice may very well require that the income owners derived from their property be taxed uh, to such an extent that they would have to work and do nothing but work in order to meet the needs of the unlucky, which would render their life, as she says, with no indication of irony, less than decent. Um, do I need to point out that the argument neatly runs in the opposite direction if you start from the unacceptability of taxation, as, again, most libertarians uh, would take? Anyway, finally, 
and I would think brazenly, she rejects the applicability of the objection that her proposal is simply unworkable. Constantly checking, she says, that the allocation of ownership rights at any given time does not fall foul of justice and fairness, and modifying that allocation as necessary are likely, she says, to be very costly and difficult. <laughs> Masterpiece of understatement here. Uh, perhaps these considerations provide good reasons not to, not to implement my proposal. Surely not, however she thinks. They cannot disqualify it as that ownership which best satisfies both justice and fairness. Now listen to this. She... My proposals are completely unworkable, but they're still the right principles. Okay, all right. Only in universities can you get away with this. Now we come to the really interesting part. The standard libertarian left and right view is that our body is beyond the reach of legitimate demands from others, whereas our personal possessions and our money are not. Moreover, on the liberal view, we are not at liberty to use our bodies in ways we ourselves desire, even if in so doing we do not necessarily harm others and may in fact benefit them, for example, as in prostitution and the sale of organs. The position that holds that people's bodies must not be interfered with, Faber calls body exceptionalism. That's all right. Um, moreover, sorry, the uh, Faber argues that if it is the case that we are susceptible to legitimate claims on our material resources from those who would appear to need them, we are also susceptible to legitimate claims on the use of our bodies and our body parts from those who need them. Our body parts may be confiscated and our personal services demanded. I'm coming to the end. Effectively, she argues that taxation, to which she thinks we have no objections, and little does she know, uh, negatively affects our life plans more extensively than, say, the forcible extraction of one of our kidneys. <laughs> Why kidneys, by the way? Why not an eye? After all, I have two, and you have none. You're much better off with gaining one than I am worse off with being reduced to one. Therefore, she thinks, uh, we shouldn't object to the forcible extraction of our kidneys. I would run the argument, of course, precisely in the opposite direction. We do object to others interfering in our bodies without license, the level of objection rising with the level of intrusion. Kidney extraction ranks pretty high. <laughs> that being so, if the reason for the rejection of kidney extraction were based on interference with life plans and taxation is more devastating from the point of view, then, of course, as I run the argument, taxation is bizarrely more objectionable than forced kidney extraction. Well, who could have seen that? This brings us back to our starting point which is that there is no position so absurd that some philosopher has not held it. And I instance the case in point. Faber's account, then, is the case in point. Her position, while consistent, is in fact a reductio of the standard liberal position. She is right to see a connection between the body and material resources and right to accuse the liberal position of inconsistency. Libertarians would run, as I said, the argument in the other direction. If conceding the legitimacy of taxation and such like leads to having to concede the rights of others to use our bodies without our consent, this turning the argument around shows us that in protecting the autonomy of our bodies, we are also committed to a protection of our ownership of external and material resources. So, Faber's position then has at least the merit of consistency, even if it's the consistency of the crazy. The libertarian position is likewise consistent. The liberal position is incoherent. Her view is radically challenging in some respects, but not in others. She has the merit of showing that the standard is a liberal view is incoherent and that the issue then is between her and libertarians. I don't see how the standard liberal or left libertarian can resist her argument, so that leaves only the libertarian position standing. So we get this. So there's a summary of the positions. So here you have, a, number one, the left libertarian liberal position, so you have non-voluntary redistribution possible of natural resources, but not 
of the bodies and fibers, which is everything can be redistributed, including your kidneys and your eyes. And a libertarian position says, get your hand off my kidneys and my eyes, to put it bluntly. All right? Yeah, and it, sorry? Well, maybe we, I, I'm sure David would probably wait to have questions afterwards and so on. I'll just finish my presentation then and allow the other speakers. Um, so there we are. So the last word. Let's leave the last word as well as the first word, Cicero. Said, Nescio quod modo nihil tamen absurde dihi potus quod non decatur ab aliquo philosophorum, Cicero. There's no position so dumb, right, that some philosopher hasn't held it. And here's a shameless advertisement. Okay, uh, uh, the, 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 my, my, my book of Mary Rothbard came out a couple of years ago, which has been read by me, the editor, <laughs> and, and, and the cat, and I'm not so sure about me, okay, uh, 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 is, was available at some ridiculous price and uh, is actually going to be available uh, on the 1st of August at a price that won't make your nose bleed. If anybody wants a copy of this presentation, send me an email at jared.casey at ucd.ie. Thank you very much.